permission, but I'll save J.R. the <laughs> All right, today's scripture reading is Zechariah chapter 9. The oracle of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like mud on the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea. She shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Geza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Geza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. And it too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your strongholds, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. <laughs> On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine, the young women. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, boys and girls, you can head out to Story Keepers or Nursery now. As the kids are heading out, let's uh, pray for God's help as we think about the passage today. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God, a God who reveals yourself to us. You've most wonderfully and beautifully marvelously revealed yourself to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. But you speak to us clearly in your written Word. We pray, Lord, that as we 
turn our attention now to this chapter, that you might help us understand it and apply it and see it, it's, uh, how it points us to our glorious Savior, the one who has come to rescue us and deliver us. Pray that for any of us here that are whatever point in our journey of faith we are at, that to, today would be a significant day, that you by your Spirit would speak into each of our lives and encourage us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we approach Holy Week and Easter, one of the musical staples that uh, many people for this time of year uh, is significant is, of course, George Frederick Handel's Messiah. And it's often been commented that one of the unusual features of this oratorio is how little it actually talks about the life and the teaching of Jesus. Messiah focuses on the incarnation and his crucifixion and the resurrection with only the briefest mention of Jesus's earthly ministry. So that the text that was written by the librettist Charles Jennings passes quickly from Christmas to Good Friday. One moment the angels are singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The next you've got the choir singing, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Charles Jennings paid almost no attention to Jesus' teaching or pastoral ministry because Messiah really isn't about those things. The subject of the drama is God's redemption of sinful people like you and me through the Messiah. There was, however, one thing between Jesus' birth and his passion that Jennings did choose to include. And that's Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday that we'll celebrate next Sunday. We're just priming the pump today for next Sunday. And Jennings alludes to it by quoting perhaps the best-known verse from the book of Zechariah that we've been working through over these last weeks, the verse that comes in our chapter today, Zechariah 9, verse 9. The Messiah quotes it from the King James Version Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is the righteous savior, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. And Jennings makes an excellent choice to include this verse, because as we're going to see this morning, as we, as we look at Zechariah 9, it was by getting on a donkey and riding into Jerusalem that Jesus announced that he was coming as none other than Israel's Messiah and the King of the world. One of my favorite classes in seminary was entitled The Old Testament in the New. It was taught by Dr. Greg Beale, and the big idea of that class was that the best commentary on the New Testament is the Old Testament, and that when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament to get the biggest bang for your buck, you need to go back and read the quotation in its original context, all of which sheds much deeper and more wonderful light on why the New Testament writer quoted it to begin with. And today we're going to do a little bit of that, because all four gospel writers describe Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. Two of those gospel writers, Matthew and John, specifically quote Zechariah 9 verse 9 to explain the significance of what Jesus was doing. And as we look at all of Zechariah 9 today, my prayer is that our awareness and our appreciation of what Jesus was doing will only deepen. Just to get our bearings before we look at this chapter, uh, we've now come to the last major section of the book of Zechariah. The first two sections of the book 
took us through Zechariah's eight night visions in chapters one to six. And then last week we looked at his sort of two sermons in chapters seven and eight. And the theme of all of that was what was headlined back in the very beginning of the book of Zechariah, where God says to his people, return to me and I will return to you. God had sent Zechariah to his people in the year 520 BC after they'd come back from exile in Babylon to bring comfort and assurance to them in the midst of their discouragement, to tell them that he was still committed to them to be their God and for them to be his people. And now here in chapters 9 to the end, 9 to 14, we have two oracles, what are called oracles, and we're which we're going to see will really serve as a further development in one form of another of what we've already seen so far. The same basic themes are here, but now they're amplified, as it were, and they're, they're played in a new key. And in general, the message of these chapters is going to be positive. The kingdom of God is indeed coming. God is going to manifest his kingly rule over the entire world. But there's also, we'll see, a darker side. The victory is not going to come without suffering and without conflict. The outcome is guaranteed and it's glorious, but the process is going to involve pain. And at the center of all of this is God's Messiah, who we're going to see is the one who's going to secure the victory for us, but by becoming the victim in our place. As we're going to see, God's promised return to his people is inextricably linked with the coming of our king, God's Messiah. We're going to work our way, therefore, over these next few weeks through these six chapters by picking up on the three most prominent messianic themes that Zechariah presents, the coming king, the good shepherd, and the pierced Messiah. Today, we're just looking at the first of those, the coming king. And here's, here's today's sermon in a sentence, that the coming of our king is the cause for great joy. The coming of the king, our king, is the, the cause for great joy. We're going to think about it in three parts this morning. First of all, God watches over us. Secondly, God comes to us. Thirdly, God reveals himself to us. So first of all, God watches over us. Look at how the first section of the chapter opens and closes in verse 1 and verse 8. We read, The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus as its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. That's verse 1, then verse 8. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. So in verse 1, the Lord, we're told the Lord's watching. He's watching everyone. He's watching all humanity with a particular focus on his people Israel. And this is not a sort of bet Midler, God is watching you from a distance sort of watching. This is an engaged watching, an active watching with consequences. And those are good consequences if you're part of God's people. Verse 8, he sort of tops and tails this section with this theme of watching. And in verse 8, where we read that God has his eye on us and tells us that the result of all that he was doing is for the ultimate security and protection of his people. God is watching over us constantly. And I hope you're encouraged by that. Jeremy said, we've had all sorts of different kinds of weeks. Some of it's been discouraging. But here's the assurance that God is always watching over his people. 
I read this week that the average cost to hire a single experienced armed bodyguard is $60 to $100 an hour. So for 24-7 protection, that comes to an annual total between $518,000 and $864,000. If you've got some spare change in your back pocket for this year. But God says, I'm the ultimate personal bodyguard for every single one of my people. Constantly watching out for the spiritual well-being and safety, their security, their salvation. Constantly watching their back. And he says, I don't cost a penny. I just ask that you would trust in me completely. But on the other hand, the consequences of God's watching are far from good for those who are opposed to him. In Friday's daily prayer project, if you've been using it, the psalm was Psalm 94, in which the wicked are reported as saying, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. However, if you read on in that psalm, he says, the psalmist goes on to observe how ridiculous it would be that the God who has formed the eye could not himself see. Of course he sees, and he watches everything, and he acts on what he sees. That's actually why what we read here is introduced as an oracle, or a burden, as some translations put it. Behind every use of this word, oracle or burden, in the Old Testament is the foreboding sense of judgment. That those whom God sees who are opposed to him and his people will face his judgment. That idea becomes even clearer in what follows because the oracle of the word of the Lord, we're told, is against the land of Hadrach. And Damascus is its resting place. Here were people who, and places that might have hoped that God was watching from a disengaged distance, but that's not the case at all. God's word operates as a force that is active in the affairs of our lives, in the affairs of the nations, affecting all of God's purposes in history. God is watching all of us. But what we then have between these statements in verse 1 and verse 8 about God watching is a list of some of God's historical enemies reported geographically to us from north to south. These nations, these enemies that God's oracle is coming against. None of these enemies are what we might call big players. They're not the imperial powers of Assyria, Babylon, and and Persia. They're, They're smaller enemies. The first one mentioned the land of Hadrach isn't actually mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament, but most scholars locate it Uh, all the way to the far north, situated on the border of Damascus. Damascus is what's mentioned next here. Damascus was uh, the capital of Syria, was a problem for Israel in the ninth century. And then we have the Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon. They never threatened Israel, at least militarily, but they were ranked with the enemies of God because of their, as mentioned here, their self-centered pride of, of, in their own skill and their own wealth. And then we're told of the Philistines, represented by the names of their cities here, Ashkelon and Gaza, Ekron and Ashdod, who were a thorn in Israel's flesh from the time of the judges until their subjugation by King David, roughly from the 12th century to the 10th century BC. But by the time of Zechariah, by the time of this prophecy, all of these enemies had one thing in common. God had already come in judgment against them such that they were all at this point effectively spent forces and no longer posed any serious threat to Jerusalem. 
Now that raises the question, well, why would Zechariah even mention these cities here? Other Old Testament prophets mentioned these places as well, but in a sort of wonderful, exquisite irony to what Zechariah to what Zachariah announces here, he presents something of a, a, a great reversal. That is, the other prophets had all spoken of these particular enemies in their actions against Israel, and how they'd come and decimated Israel's land, how they'd brought God's punishment to the people. These enemies, however, always came in approximately the route presented here. The enemies never came from the south. They never came from the east or the west. Israel's enemies always came from the north. One of the most stark examples of that was, were the Assyrians who moved from one city to the next, bringing atrocity to one after another. In each city, the Assyrians would heap up the heads of the conquered victims out in front of the city gates. The news of that would quickly spread to the next city that they were on their way to, just terrifying the residents. But whether it was the Syrians or any other enemy of Israel, they'd always start in the north and they'd work south. But notice that the itinerary here is somewhat strange because there's something missing. Not a single city of Israel is mentioned here. So that unless they kind of worked out how to do helicopters back then, they must have passed through the promised land, but it's not even mentioned. It just jumps from one traditional backyard enemy of Israel to the next backyard enemy, really because this is supposed to be a reminder that for those who oppose God and make themselves enemies to God and his people, there's no escape from him. The judge who sees everything is going to show up and he's going to act. All past wrongs, all deceit, all injustice, all brutality is going to be accounted for. But here's another thing to notice in this itinerary. It's not just a strange itinerary. The result of it is also strange because instead of leaving a scorched earth behind and heaps of heads like the previous marauders, this conquering king, while clearly bringing judgment, also leaves behind converts. Look at verse 7 in which God is talking about the Philistines. He says, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. You know, you're reading along in these verses. This is not what you were expected to, to see, that even bloodthirsty Philistines from Ekron, who have all sorts of prohibited, idolatrous meat between their teeth, even some of them will be saved. And not just to some sort of second class citizen position, they're going to be made leaders in privileged positions just like Judah. God wasn't bluffing in chapter 8 when he said, when he promised that he's going to save people from the nations. Now, if you're struggling to see how any of this chapter so far applies to your life, I don't blame you. But here, here is at least one thing. If God could and would and did save bloodthirsty Philistines from Ekron, he can save anyone. There are people in your life, perhaps your spouse, perhaps your children, perhaps a parent, perhaps a sibling or a friend, and if you're honest, you've pretty much given up on them ever becoming a follower of Jesus. In some cases, they seem to be so far gone, so distant from anything even remotely connected to faith, that in your mind, it's just a lost cause. 
But it's never a lost cause with God. Because as the Bible reminds us, nothing is impossible with God. Let me let you into a little secret. Do you know it took a miracle for you to become a Christian? Before God saved you, you had a hard heart. You were an enemy of God. You were dead in your sins. God had to perform supernatural CPR to bring you to spiritual life. He had to do a miraculous work of grace to bring you to himself. Just as he would do with bloodthirsty Philistines from Ekron. And just as he can do with your loved ones. So don't give up hope. And don't stop praying for them. Because God is watching over us. That brings us to our second main point. God comes to us unto this most famous of verses, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, far be it from me to presume, but I'm assuming that, uh, like, like me, for many of us, your knowledge of donkey terminology is somewhat limited, for example, did you know that a male donkey is called a jackass? Female donkey's a jenny? If you didn't, well, no extra charge. You found that out this morning. And while you may not think those details are of particular theological significance, and even if that kind of language belongs in a church, I would suggest otherwise. A few weeks ago in the men's group that's led by Eric Wilkins and John Belay, we were doing a study on Genesis 49, which is the passage where Jacob blesses his sons before he dies. And when Jacob comes to his son Judah, part of what he says to Judah is this. This is Genesis 49, 10 to 11. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt, that is the jackass's son of a jenny, to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So Jacob announces that Israel's future is going to depend on one of the descendants of his son Judah, who one day will rule. And what will be that king from Judah's chosen mode of transport? He will come on a jackass, the son of a jenny. He will ride on a purebred donkey. And then nothing more really is said of this for over 1,300 years until Zechariah walks onto the stage and he calls on Israel to rejoice and to celebrate because the coming of this donkey-riding king from Judah is on the horizon. Now, it's worth pointing out that a king on a donkey was not actually all that unprecedented, as we, we might think. Though kings often rode horses and chariots in times of war, a sign of their regal stature, military prowess, the custom for normal royal functions actually was for kings to ride donkeys. But what sets this king apart is that when he comes riding on a donkey, he does so without any airs of grandeur, any airs of worldly power or status. He comes in meekness and humility. Listen again to the description of him in verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So let's start with this humble word, humility. Jesus actually picks up on this description of himself in Matthew 11, which Jeremy read to us for our words of encouragement this morning. These wonderful words, come to me all who are labor and heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Here's what's interesting. Where translated as humble in Zechariah 9 is the word gentle that Jesus uses in Matthew 11. This king is gentle and mounted on a donkey. And it's not just in his mode of transportation that he demonstrates his gentleness. It's shown in this king's relationship with his subjects. He treats them as members of his own family. So the Lord announces in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! The word daughter reminding us that God regards his people as his own beloved children. God's love for his people is like the love of a good father for his own dear sons and daughters. You can imagine, perhaps, that a father going in to say goodnight to his little girl. and She's already asleep. In the darkness, he can just make out the small shape of her body under the covers. And he kneels down by her bedside, and he kisses her on her cheek, and then rests his head against her, feeling her chest breathing in and out, out and in, and in the silence he whispers, I love you, my precious one. And such is the tender love that God has for his people, for us. And out of the warmth of his heart, he sends his gentle son to be our king. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, preached on this chapter all the way back in the 17th century. He explains why this coming king is the cause for our joy. He said, happy are these his subjects who dwell under his shadow. He rules them not with that rod of iron by which he bruises and breaks the power of his enemies, but with his golden scepter of love. He reigns by his own right and by their full and free consent in their hearts. He reigns upon a throne of grace to which they have at all times access, and from whence they receive in answer to their prayers mercy and peace, the pardon of all their sins, grace to help in every time of need, and a renewed supply answerable to all their wants, cares, services, and conflicts. This king indeed is the cause for joy. But before Zechariah tells us that the king is gentle, he tells us that he's righteous, and then this somewhat awkwardly phrased ESV translation, having salvation is he. What's that all about? There's actually an interesting translation issue here. We don't want to get too bogged down in the weeds, but it's worth pausing over. The Geneva Bible of 1560, which I know you all have on your shelves at home, it was the uh, version that the commanded the devotion of the English-speaking world before the King James Version, but the, the Geneva Bible read the, the Hebrew here most literally when it said, he is righteous and saved. And as later Greek and Latin translations of the Hebrew Bible changed that passive saved to an active saving, which is where the ESV then gets having salvation. And it raises a question. Does the rightful king come to save or to be saved? Was he coming to bring salvation or did he somehow need to be saved himself? You read the Gospels and it's very clear in different ways in different places that the Messiah did not come to be saved but to save. The very reason Jesus came into the world and went to the cross is because, precisely because you and me 
More than anything else in life or in this world, we need a Savior. What good would it be for God to send a Savior who himself was in need of salvation? Well, perhaps, therefore, to our surprise, Zachariah's prophecy here is indeed that the king himself will be saved. To work out what's going on here, we do well to notice that the accompanying Accompanying the description of the king uh, saved is this word righteous. We put those two things together. That helps us. In other words, he's righteous in that he does, he does what is right. He does what is good. In the case of Jesus, this king was perfectly righteous. He was fully obedient to God's commands. He was sinless. All his actions were just. And as such, Jesus did not need to be saved from his sins. And so, in what sense was he saved? And the answer to that is he was saved from death by the resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he had to be delivered from. Even though the Bible often uses the word saved to refer to salvation from sin, it also uses the term in a more general way to refer to any kind of deliverance. For example, at the end of Psalm 20, the psalmist cries out, O Lord, save the king! That's not a prayer for the king to be saved from, uh, f- saved from his sin. It's a f- prayer for deliverance from his enemies. And that's the kind of salvation Zechariah has in mind here when he promises that the king would come righteous and saved. That the prophet was, was announcing that God's rightful king would be delivered. He would be vindicated. So perhaps a, a, a good, more modern translation than the Geneva Bible is that of the Revised English Bible that says, See, your king is coming, his cause won, his victory gained. But here's why this is such unbelievably good news for us. Because in the end, Jesus just overflows the categories of Zechariah 9.9. The king there was described as saved. Jesus has to be saved from death. But in the Gospels, we read that Jesus riding into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday has the crowds around him shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, save us now. Because Jesus is both the model of complete dependence upon God's deliverance and he's the Lord who acts to bring salvation to us. The fact that God saved Jesus means that Jesus can now save us. Now that Jesus has been delivered from death, he has the power to deliver us from death. The one who is able to, who is righteous and and saved is able to be our savior. How does he become your savior? Well, he says, I'm the king who comes in weakness, who comes in humility, and the way you come into my kingdom is the same way, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, by humbly repenting of your sin admitting your need, and clinging to this king as your only hope for salvation. God has come to us. And thirdly, and briefly, God reveals himself to us. I wonder if you, if you noticed as Ashley read the, the chapter that there were really two main characters in this chapter. Verses 1 to 8, it's actually the Lord, it's Yahweh, who's speaking and on, on the move, making his southward journey. And it's therefore Yahweh we would be expecting to arrive in Jerusalem at this point. But then in the middle of the chapter, we meet the king who's going to enter Jerusalem, who's clearly distinguished from Yahweh. 
So, for example, in verse 10, Yahweh's the speaker announcing the arrival of the king, speaking of him in the third person. Yahweh says, he, the king, will proclaim peace to the nations. So the king's a man, the king's a human being, but clearly a man who's closely associated with God, but in this chapter, distinguished from God. And it's interesting, therefore, when we turn to the New Testament, that the New Testament writers ascribe the actions of Yahweh in this chapter to the Lord Jesus, that the king actually is the Lord. Let me just mention a couple of examples. First, it's interesting that Jesus's itinerary prior to his ride into Jerusalem uh, sort of mirrors in some way the pattern we see in this chapter. So for example, in Matthew 15, Jesus is way up north dealing with the Syrophoenician woman up towards the area of Syria. And then slowly begins this journey of spiritual conquest from there, healing people and quieting the demons and setting people free from what has them in bondage. And then he makes his way, setting his face like a flint to Jerusalem, heading with each successive chapter toward the place where he will enter on a donkey to be saved so that he can save us. And then secondly, when when once Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, He takes on Yahweh's role of guarding the temple, as is mentioned here in verse 8. In three of the four Gospels, the first reported action of Jesus having entered Jerusalem was to go to the temple and to drive out the merchants and the money changers. Jesus may be humble and and gentle, but in the words of Mr. Beaver from the Narnia Chronicles, he's not safe. He's not safe. And so in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, verse 8, Jesus cleanses God's house. God reveals himself to us in his son, the king, who's not only the king, but he's the Lord himself. And it's because this king is the Lord himself that he can speak peace and go global with his rule and his reign. Look at verse 10. He shall speak peace to the nations His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. When we think of peace, we we tend to think and frame it in in negative terms, that is, in the absence of conflict. The peace that Zechariah describes here certainly includes that. At the start of verse 10, God's going to take away the chariots, he's going to take away the war horses, he's going to break the bows. But the peace announced here is something much, much richer than just the removal of something. Because it's it's this Hebrew word shalom, which has at its root this meaning of wholeness and well-being. It refers to flourishing and fulfillment in every dimension of life. Can you imagine that in every dimension of your life, just complete wholeness, flourishing? Your spiritual life, your physical life, your emotional life, your cultural life, your social life. Shalom really has to do with a wholeness in relationships, which includes living in a loving covenantal relationship with our creator. And that's what King Jesus promises to bring. Listen to how Paul confirms this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, for he, that is Jesus himself, is our peace, is our shalom, who has made both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. 
for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus is our peace. His death and resurrection have brought us peace, not only vertically between us and God, but horizontally with one another. And we're told in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, he preaches peace to those who are far away and to those who are near. It's a peace to all the nations because Jesus' rule and reign is going to extend from north to south, from east to west, because God's kingdom has started and will continue to go global. Has that shalom arrived in all its fullness yet? I don't have to answer that question for you. You know the answer. It hasn't. But it's coming. And in the final section of this chapter, we're assured that those who have Jesus as their Messiah, as their king, will also have him as their champion. That there are still spiritual battles ahead. But the God who watches over us is committed to be with us and to fight for us as he's done for his people countless times before. And Zechariah assures us this fighting is not going to go on forever. The spiritual battle is one day going to be over. One day perfect shalom will come, a, a brief picture of which we get in the last two verses of this chapter, 16 to 17. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. This gentle and lowly king will deliver his people, will deliver us no matter what comes against us, who comes against us, such that we will shine like the crown jewels as his prized possession. And people will gasp at his goodness and at his beauty. And I think in turn to understand even at the beauty of his people. And on that day, the feasting will result in flourishing. We will be treasured and we will be so, so filled with joy. These last verses are, are one of those parts of the Bible where even though God was originally speaking to a small group of people tucked away in a corner of Western Persia, he's really speaking to us. Because this is always how the humble king treats us his people. He saved us. He finds us. He frees us. He cleans us up. He holds us up like jewels, sparkling like a crown. Coming of our king is the cause for great joy in our lives. So may it rise up in us as in Handel's Messiah, as a hallelujah chorus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a great king you are. What a loving, gentle, humble king you are to your people. That you would count us as part of your family. That you, as our elder brother, would do all that you have done to bring us into your family. To save us from our sin. And to give us this great hope for the future. We pray, Lord, for those who we know, whom we love, who do not know you yet. We pray that we would not give up hope for them, that we would be faithful in our prayers for them, knowing that you can save anyone. We thank you for this passage and its encouragement, its direction. We ask all this in Jesus' name. 
Amen.